My number one album. Big shocker to me. Also folklore. Whoa. Are you ready to dive into all things Taylor Swift? Good for a Weekend is the ultimate podcast for any Swiftie. With new episodes dropping bi-monthly, as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to the latest rumors and news, it's your one-stop shop for all things T-Swift. We also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts. Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know. Well, just is that like it's a perfect album the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about that's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials to participate simply fill up an orange hefty renew bag with accepted items tie it up and drop it in with your regular recycling that's it it's that easy it's time to rethink recycling with renew Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, it's the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. What an incredible idea for a podcast, right? I'm patting myself on the back for it right now. I'm Adam Ons. Thank you so much for joining me. I've got quite a show for you today. I know I pretty much always say that, but this time it is truly quite, quite a show. I had a very lovely chat with film producer Ian Canning about his love for the iconic Tennessee Williams play A Streetcar Named Desire, as well as Ilya Kazan's equally iconic film adaptation starring Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee. And we also talked about Ian's love for Wong Kar Wai's 1994 film Chungking Express, which starred Fei Wong, Tony Lung, and Brigitte Lin. You'll know Ian from, let's be honest, so much amazing stuff. He won an Oscar for producing The King's Speech. His work with director Steve McQueen includes stunners like Hunger, Shame, and Widows. He's produced a list of incredible films as long as your arm, and he also produces some incredible TV, including the Chris O'Dowd and Rosamund Pike starring State of the Union, for which he recently won an Emmy. Not too shabby, eh? Ian is a wonderful guy, and we had a fantastic discussion, so I think you'll rather enjoy that. Something to look forward to, eh? I won't keep you waiting too much longer, but first, I want to talk about acting. Who doesn't, right? So... There are lots of types of acting in the world, but I think the most noticeable divide is between stage and screen acting. Stage acting tends to be a little broader. The actors are playing to a live audience and fighting against the noise of the crowd, you know, breathing, coughing, laughing, talking, opening and consuming food, etc. They need to project their voices to be heard in a sometimes giant theater, and they need to make sure that the emotions they're trying to convey can be read by people who can sometimes be quite far away from them. This might not mean wild gesticulation, but everything has a tendency to be a bit heightened, shall we say. Screen acting doesn't need to work that hard. The actors can speak and act naturally because the mics and the camera easily pick up even the subtlest of movements. The two styles used to be much closer. If you watch old black and white movies, they're about as stagey as can be. It was a transition between film acting styles emulating the familiar rhythms of stage acting to film acting leaning towards naturalism. As you'll hear in a minute, Ian and I talked about Brando's performance in Streetcar as a pivotal one in that transition. There's a stark contrast between Brando's acting and that of his co-stars. 
But you can get an even clearer picture of that contrast when an actor performs the same role in different media, as is the case with Phoebe Waller-Bridge in Fleabag. More on that later. But the sweet spot for me is when someone can marry the two. As I mentioned last week, Mary Louise Parker is a astonishingly good in Adam Rapp's incredible new play, The Sound Inside, on Broadway. She has the vocal power and sheer magnetism needed to keep a large Broadway audience captivated for 90 minutes, but her acting never feels unnatural. She's so subtle and so conversational, and maybe it's because she's worked so often on the stage as well as in TV and film, or maybe it's just that she's phenomenally talented, or maybe it's a combination of the two, but she proves to me that the best actors are able to blur the lines between stage and screen acting. It's such a skill, and actors who are able to achieve that balance deserve to be celebrated. Wow, that was a lot of talking. Did we learn anything? Who knows? Only time will tell. Let's not dwell on it. Let's move on. Here comes my chat with Ian Canning about A Streetcar Named Desire and Chungking Express. So why don't we start with A Streetcar Named Desire? Yeah, I mean, it, it's got a kind of dual importance in some way, because I, I remember I remember going from comprehensive school. So up until I was 15, 16, went to comprehensive school and then ended up going to college. And the college that I went to, which is two years, had an, I, I studied English literature. And I remember going from having been in sort of quite a sort of working class um, school, going into this place where everyone was pretty middle class and for some ge- geographical reason were all surfers and um, ended up sort of learning completely different texts from what I'd done comprehensive and, and streetcar names i was one of the first ones we came across and i just remember sort of being completely opened up to the concept of uh, many things i was uh, not out um at that point and there was this gay playwright and we were doing things like joe Orton's prick up your ears and we were doing orange is the only fruit and it was just like a complete um revelation to me and i and, and it was i remember just everyone being so much smarter for me in the class, but because of that, they were sort of throwing in loads of extra information about the play and about Tennessee Williams, and yeah, it just really brought art, I think, in many ways alive for me. And also, given I've ended up being a film producer, sort of dovetailed quite nicely with the film, I guess, which I watched after, or, you know, simultaneously, because give anyone the opportunity to watch a film while they're also studying something, it's like the best thing ever. Um, and it's such a definitive... And it has been made again in different versions of the film, but certainly the Kazan version is is pretty definitive as the way I see it um, as a film. And um, yeah, it was it was a it was a huge uh, moment of just falling in love with a piece of falling in love with a playwright's work and the particular play, and then also a film as well in the same um, in, in this you know all in the same story. So it was it was a thrill to get all that from one piece. Yeah. And I, I talk quite a lot with um, people on this podcast about like how adolescence is a time when, you know, the world is really opening up to you. But having those experiences in school where the material that you're reading and learning about is so adult and yeah, it, it, it is the world completely opening up in front of you. It's like 
getting a chance to talk about really mature subjects, you know, uh, sexuality and domestic violence and suicide and all of these really heavy, weighty topics that it's a time when it feels like your teachers are treating you maybe not like an adult, but like someone who can handle a bit more weight to the information that they're getting in school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and, and what a way to start in terms of gay storylines, Blanche Dubois' husband. I mean, what a, what a great way to dive in um, <laughs> for, for that. But I, but I think that um, I think what was what was great and what I remember so vividly was an argument between this super clever guy and this super clever woman in the class, which was about was Tennessee Williams Blanche or was Blanche Tennessee Williams' sister? And I think, you know, reading around it, it's it's pretty much a bit of both, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, he had sort of left or, or decided, maybe his father was involved in sort of getting him to leave school or something early, and he ended up working in a factory for a while. And I think the Stanley character is based on somebody he was at work with. So there's that sort of dynamic. But then I know he later, but also his sister at the time, I think, was suffering with mental illness. So um, I think that was a big part of the writing as well. And, um, and it's sort of, as, as a piece, it's, it's stayed with me. You know, I've seen now a number of versions on stage. And, um, but, you know, being introduced, I would say, yes, that was the first introduction to Marlon Brando's acting style, actually, mm. at that point as well, which has, you know, been a part of conversations with actors since leaving university and, and getting a job in film so it's it you, you definitely its influence has been long but it's definitely you're right it's that kind of moment where you realize that culture isn't necessarily something you're forced to consume because you've got to pass an exam but is actually something that can form you yeah definitely Marlon Brown's performance in in this film obviously is this huge like landmark revelation in in filmmaking and it's so I I just rewatched it and the contrast between his performance and the performances of the other actors around him I mean in particular Vivian Lee feels very stagey yeah. um and it's Marlon Brando who just seems like some random person who's just wandered in off the street, who's just behaving completely naturally and stumbling over his words and just like sounds like a human being. And yeah, it, uh, it must have been at the time when the film came out really shocking to have um, that kind of acting on the screen. But, you know, the ripples uh, the the effect of that performance have carried on you know influenced so many people and I, I feel like that performance had a huge hand in setting the the standard for for what film performance is now yeah yeah and it can be used as a good tool and used as a bad tool mm. um either as you know in terms of really delving into the craft or also just being anarchic and and also maybe that's a good thing too but it, it is funny rewatching it recently. You just, the, the, the whole story is drenched in, um, especially with what's going on in terms of uh, Me Too and all the dynamics surrounding mm. that and all the progression that's been made in such a short space of time is how obsessed Tennessee Williams was in this sort of complicated attractiveness to brutality in some mm. way and how he sort of associated working classness with violence in some way or 
and and that being somehow that violence being sexualized and being seen as complicated is interesting and complex for the time and probably even more complex now mm-hmm. um thankfully in terms of in terms of that character's behavior and you know ultimately leads to the tragic circumstances at the end of the of of the stu- of the play and, and film which is you know some of the most iconic lines of all time mm-hmm. um in that and it, it is very play-like and yet it is directed as well the film and um it's it's got a real real sense of place even though i suspect it was pretty much back lot shot through the whole thing so um it uh it, it there has been other versions of it which nowhere near get close to how good everybody is and obviously it's pretty legendary that that in terms of the Blanche casting had shifted from the Broadway mm-hmm. version to the film version, which was I still think remains controversial in some way. But um, yeah, um, I, I uh, always wonder what it would have been like if Jessica Tandy had been allowed to to play that um, play Blanche on screen as well, because you know I I enjoy Vivian Lee's performance, but it feels like high camp <laughs> to me. It's yeah, like yeah, you know, really over the top, and I think. That character, especially in a modern context, it, 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 she's played in the film like somebody who's going crazy and she's yeah. just a nutcase and there's so much more complexity to it. It's like this is a woman whose husband killed himself, who's just suffered incredibly, whose family, you know, she comes from a really wealthy background and she's lost everything. And those issues don't necessarily get brushed aside in the movie, but the the portrayal kind of makes it seem like... Yes, those things happened, but the the heart of it is that she's just a nutcase, and that's um, that's what it really boils down to. Yeah, um, and, and they play the privilege as well. You know, they really play the privilege cards to sort of, I don't know, to make that somehow more tangible, that or, or sort of more her sympathy levels are lessened in some way because the privilege which is quite modern in a way, I guess, that the privilege is played as a real negative. Mm. Uh, whereas actually for the day, they could have played it slightly differently in terms of that, in terms of actually being a part of her sort of collective trauma of what, what had gone on. It's sort of played as we were once grand and we're not, and now I'm suffering because I don't have the privilege, which of course is a part of it, but I don't know. Um, played in a slightly different way and yeah sorry Uh, just you know uh, and Marlon Brando like Stanley manipulating that and uh, using that uh, idea that he he feels like everyone else recognizes that privilege and sees that that's the the main problem with her and so he uses that to cover his own totally abhorrent behavior and also, just like what you were saying before about the parallels to the Me Too movement, I think the fact that Marlon Brando is so just like intensely hot in this and, you know, he's at he's it's the first big uh, screen performance. It's the first time that he was really introduced to a wide audience and every scene that he's in, the, the camera just absolutely loves him and he everything that he does is just really sexual and the it it adds this complexity that it's like understanding the way that how his relationship with stella carries on when he's 
horribly abusive to her. He treats her like shit. And then at the same time, there's this thing about him that attracts him to her. And there are times when he's really kind and sweet to her and he always rushes to apologize to her when he's done something terrible. And I think the parallels between that and real abusive relationships, you know, when people come down on women who've been in terrible abusive relationships for not leaving, it's like it's so much more complex than that. Love and sex and all the things that go into a relationship complicate your feelings so much, even if you're in a situation that's really dangerous and um you know it is causing you immense pain as well yeah i mean especially given the control that that plays a part in all of that which and and yeah he's a monster and a narcissist in the in the play and and it's that first sequence with the meat you know it's physical literally a bit of meat is being thrown around mm. um and and that's where it, as the sort of hunter gatherer he plays that role and and it's it's pretty animalistic from from the beginning, and and in some circumstances that hasn't changed this day. So it's it's as powerful now as as, as it was then. On the lighter side of it, my, I think my my husband thinks I'm at least twenty five percent Blanche Dubois because I have this <laughs> complicated relationship with coming downstairs when someone knocks on our door, and I, I, I sort of like to I sort of like to be second in that circumstance. So there's there's other aspects of it that may be abrupt out rubbed off on my character because I, I do like to somewhat make a Blanche Dubois entrance when someone comes through the door. So Blanche Dubois is part Tennessee Williams, part Tennessee Williams' <laughs> sister, part, part and part animal. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, part my spirit animal, yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, was this the first play of Tennessee Williams' that you were aware of? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. It was, actually, and, and for, a, for a while, because the... the, the the deep dive, because I was getting so much of a sort of spectrum of plays and works during like those two years of college, it was hard to sort of deep dive. But then since I've been working in film, you then therefore see a range of things as, as a part of a fact-finding mission. But it wasn't really, I didn't really go and root out everything else, which was silly of me. And I always just crave the moment in my life when I can really truly go back to playwrights and authors that I really loved and and read things not thinking whether it would make a great TV show or a or a <laughs> film but it, currently that's that's sort of the focus of any reading or watching yeah well you know I don't think that's uh, necessarily a bad shift it's uh, no. like as long as you're still getting yeah. that enjoyment out of it and it it is like not only being able to discover new things and enjoy them but have the ability to turn them into your own work is pretty exciting it is, and also, and also, when you see a version of something like Streetcar, where someone's performance totally transforms what you thought about the characters, mm -hmm. um, is the best. That that is that is the fantastic thing about a text that's so poetic but malleable as well. And I think um, I have been I have been surprised by different stagings of it and everything, and thought, right, this is this is this is fresh and and. Um, and makes me think about different aspects of the play I'd never even thought about. Mm -hmm. Which I think is a huge testament to Tennessee Williams's writing, that it's like something that e even if he had a particular vantage point in mind when he was writing it, it is so open to interpretation and it, wild, wildly different interpretations too. It completely changes the meaning of the play. And I think the best writing allows for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, uh, very much so. Yeah. 
So why don't we talk a little bit about Chungking Express? Um, I rewatched this film again last night and it stood up for me. I was, I was quite surprised. I thought, cause the, my first screening of this particular film was part of, I, so leaving college, I went to university to study journalism, journalism. And one of the small, like the sort of minor of that is I did a world cinema mm. course and we were each week, there was a new film that we had to watch. And it was, it was actually, I wish I could remember the name of my lecturer because it was the most incredible uh, cross-section of, of world cinema. I think we, you know, there was the sort of classic Goddard and Bresson and there was some in, really amazing pieces there. But then also we did Bandit Queen and mm -hmm. Chunky Express. Um, and we even did The Piano, which ended up being an EP on Jane Campion's Top of the Lake TV series. Um, and we're about to make a film with her. So mm -hmm. it it was a real um, foundation course, really, in, in all of the films I kind of love and all of the kind of filmmakers I've fallen in love with and, and continue to admire um, Pedro Amdova's work and so on. And, and this was like a whole punk jolt to me. Since I was reading a few of the reviews, knowing I was having a chat and, about it, and it felt that some people had sort of connected it in some way to some sort of MTV generation kind of aesthetic and didn't really feel I don't even feel that really now I, I think it's such a such an, a beautiful way of describing two very complex romantic scenarios and I just remember just being totally blown away by how time and the camera w were used as almost like the dialogue and there isn't a huge amount of dialogue in it. In fact, most of it is voiceover. Mm -hmm. um, but when it does work, it works really well. And yeah, I was, I, was, um, I was very happy that it held up for me as much as I thought. Although some very complex characters who are uh, in some very bizarre love dynamics. Shall we say? Sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I'd read that in reviews as well about the kind of MTV stylings, and I guess I can understand that with the sequences that are you know like the world rushing by in um, in front of someone who's kind of moving in slow motion. That those kind of camera effects, I guess, yeah. in in hindsight, in retrospect, seem like something that was very like of that time and that effect was used in a lot of music videos but that's kind of yeah. it it's like everything else about it, it it seems like it that it's really reaching to um compare it to stuff that was shown on mtv it's very very different to yeah. um anything that would have been uh, yeah in a, in a music video outside of those kinds of effects although um, i think i think ironically texas the mood board for a texas music video while <laughs> chunking express sometimes mm. you come across music videos where you go oh someone had a mood board for this particular film and and lo and behold it ends up being is very influenced by yeah. it and 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 it definitely so it ended up being on mtv probably even though uh, that was not the intention of filmmaking but the, there's just some amazing bits like just that moment where in the second story, Tony Lung is just having that coffee and the whole time going by. And it's 
it's all moving through place and then just the the putting of the coin into the the jukebox mm. i don't know whether it's the film student in me that still just enjoys those so much but your um it's it's that sort of cinematography that is just is just the most uh, yeah it it just pulls you into the story um even more and um and christopher doyle who is legendary obviously shot it and does shoot Wonka wide stuff and he's just a real legend yeah. extraordinary and in that respect i feel like all of those reviews are discovering something that's the exact opposite of the truth it's like everything on mtv was influenced by what was happening in this movie so yeah it, it's like uh if you saw all of those camera effects if you saw things that reminded you of the movie it's probably because the people who directed those music videos saw the movie yeah yeah and you know people i mean i think quentin tarantino ended up being the distributor for the film in the u.s in in some context and i think that you know barry jenkins mentions one car Wai films constantly and, and definitely Whereas it took me longer in some ways to get to Tennessee Williams' work post-Streetcar, I, I went through every single Wonka Y film I could get my hands on after I'd seen the film. And then, you know, Happy Together being an extraordinary piece, which actually really interestingly wasn't as well-reviewed as I remember it being or remember it being so sort of powerful to me, which as far as I know is his own any real gay love story film. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, back to it's it is crazy when you rewatch something at a slightly different age, which is part of the joy sometimes when you go back to something and have it just in a different place in your life about watching it. But it did it did make me think that that Fei Wong's character is sort of the the ultimate mad, beautiful female protagonist that you know breaks into Tai Lung's house and all is well uh, mm-hmm. with her because she's doing that. But maybe my younger self thought that was more enchanting and maybe my older self says, hmm, it's a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit controversial that she's <laughs> got a key and breaking into his home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But at, at the same time, you know, the voiceover saying like, Oh, I I feel like I've become much more observant in my life, and his like apartments being cleaned and things are being moved around. He has no idea. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, it's true, and and I think it's pretty well known about Chunking Express that it was a it was a sort of almost a cleanser for Wong Kar Wai. He was making a sort of big epic, and was in the middle of the edit and wanted to do something a little wilder and contemporary, and ended up shooting this and it was meant to have a third story which then ended up becoming another one of his films later rather than becoming going into chunking express so it's it's got a bit of a legacy through his filmography and then obviously he did in the mood for love which is um, a masterpiece and um but this and it was it was fun for me i guess to watch a filmmaker do something so relatively low budget and then end up continuing to build their career and make films that had a grander scale and had a bigger audience and, and progressed in that way. And Pedro Madova has done a similar thing through his career and therefore being able to manage their, their own type of filmmaking and be able to protect their way of doing things. And I've definitely gone into producing with filmmakers with the same idea, which is that 
you know, working with them, taking their ideas and then making them grow as filmmakers. And if their canvases get bigger, then you, you explore that, but you're trying to keep that kind of thing that's special about them in every single film that they do. And, um, and that's, that's definitely, that's definitely stuck with me from that world cinema and seeing, uh, and in particular chunking express and then, and then watching all of his films and then watching his films as they got released, um, and thinking, wow, what an incredible career of, what a, what a great filmmaking achievement through all of the different uh, stories. Mm-hmm. I also had a similar experience at university of taking a film class that was, you know, something that exposed me to a lot of films that I probably never would have watched on my own or films that I'd heard of, but just kind of, you know, because I was a teenager thinking like, oh, it's, you know, from the 60s and I don't know, it's old and I don't want to watch old movies or whatever. Um but uh, I think that can be so revelatory um, when, when you're a kid who's especially asserting your independence again, starting out on your own, really experiencing life away from your parents for the first time and having your eyes opened to this whole other world of cinema that, you know, at least in the Western world, mainstream cinema pretty much across the board tends to be films that were made in the Western world. And um, yeah, having the opportunity to explore other other types of cinema and uh, like how other countries people from other countries make movies and the different styles that come from different perspectives and and different nations is really an incredible incredible thing also watching um looking at hong kong in terms of that particular period of time versus what's going on now and just seeing that clash of the american uh, imagery of all of the fast food and all of those side d- dynamics and music mm-hmm. as well coming from the US and then uh, this very particular sort of way of, you know, just basically people living their lives in Hong Kong and not being American and seeing the clash of that and also the California dreaming coming on all the time. It was, it's, it's, it's a sort of strange moment to rewatch the film again, given the sort of fight for democracy taking place and just just where the film and it, interestingly i think there was a lot of conversations for Wonka Wai around happy together because that was at the point where hong kong and and the uk were parting ways as such and and uh, he was being asked well why what does this film say about this period of time where is that and i think that's why he ended up shooting it in argentina was actually to try and avoid that question but wildly ended up becoming a bit of a metaphor for Hong Kong's changes at that point. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was strange, given what's going on in the news, watching the, the film again. But also going to your point about just having that sort of moment where you're, or, or I should also say, having heard your podcast before, it's also a short film, Adam, in many ways. It is uh, way below two hours. As a, as a film. So um, I know you don't like long films. So uh, yes, so, noted, which, noted and appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, you know, if I picked maybe something I had produced that was long would be would be not so pleasant for you. But uh, uh, definitely it's a sh- it's a shorter feature length film. But I, re- I remember I remember being at university and having a friend there who was slightly older who had taped pretty much every single film that had been on Channel 4 and I just kept on watching lots and lots of, of, of films that were from all over the world. And I, and anyone who starts 
it, well, basically, I meet with the film schools and everything out of the UK, and 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 people always say in the director courses or in the producer courses, you know, what would be your advice? And it it's so strange to me that watching you should watch a lot of films feels like a bizarre thing to say because actually it is the most important thing because it helps you construct films yourself. It helps you talk the language. It helps you have some sort of standing with filmmakers when you're, when you're talking about their work or how you see the, the scripts or how you see the story unfold. It just seems like such a key aspect of it and something that seems somehow difficult, which shouldn't be really. Yeah, I guess just exposing yourself to different types of stories, but also as someone who wants to be a filmmaker, even if you're not aware of what each kind of shot means, like exposing yourself to different filmmaking techniques and becoming familiar with them. And then when you later learn how they were achieved, you at least have a sense of what that looks like and, you know, how lighting affects things and color and the time of day that you shoot, all of those elements. And then learning how all of those elements are used by different directors, by, you know, if there's a, a unifying theme from uh, national cinema for a particular country, blah, blah, blah. All of that stuff is like, of oh, course, yeah. and it's, it's all there for you to see. And the biggest advantage is that like studying film, wanting to make film, there's expense that comes into buying equipment or uh, studying or whatever. And watching films is pretty much the cheapest way that you can <laughs> learn. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And the, one of the happiest things I was made aware of is that Wong Kar Wai was asked, was asked um, what films he'd seen recently that he had enjoyed and he, he name-checked Shame. And for me, that was like a very nice full circle moment where you were lucky enough to be involved in one film that somebody you, you had adored for years admired. Um, and, I, and I think actually it was, it was a double sort of moment around shame because i remember being at the new york film festival and the excitement of pedro Almodovar's face as, as he came out of the screening having seen something that he also had connected with in terms of the filmmaking and that was that was that was just so fantastic that for, for one film it sort of connected the two cinematic heroes i'd sort of grown up with admiring um, and, and had been involved in a film that they had both connected with was uh, was very unexpected and welcome. Mm, yeah. And even Wong Kar Wai, Pedro Almodovar, and Steve McQueen all kind of share, there's some similar tonal elements to some of their films, but they're all very specific, very different filmmaking styles. And I think finding those moments of commonality is really special. Um, and yeah. and I, I can understand even knowing that those two other filmmakers make very different films that the parallels and the, you know, the slice of the Venn diagram where all of those filmmakers meet is clear. Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, they're all artists and that's a word that gets thrown around quite a lot, but they, they truly are. Um, and I think that there's this sort of common, common sense that filmmaking is very, uh, competitive, you know, that th there's literally competitions all over the festival circuit about films. But the, the greatest thing is when someone said to me, high tides float all ships. And I, I, I really try and take that into the business because 
you you want films to work at the box office. You you want work to be praised, and when other filmmakers respect each other and and can celebrate each other, it, it's it's a it's a fantastic thing for the for the industry, I think. And you're always learning and picking up new things, and and um, and storytelling is evolving, and different filmmakers take it forward in, in different ways each time. But if people can admire and support each other and and make great work, then that helps us all. Yes. Uh, yeah. Also, just uh, Chunking Express in terms of tone and story and mood. It's all, all of those things. Like, like you said, there's not a lot of dialogue, and both stories are kind of. Mm, I don't know if loose is the right word, but it's like more about a moment in time and particular experiences that people are going through rather than telling a traditional story. Yeah. And to me, it's like two love stories where no one really falls in love. Yes. Um, yes. And also yes. just about heartbreak and the transition away from heartbreak and how people work through how people grieve for relationships that have ended. Um, yeah. But done in a way that isn't like grief in the you know traditional sense of that word. It's not really about sadness. It's like people who are hurting, but they're getting through it and they're doing what they can to kind of pick up the pieces and move on with their lives. And they do. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I'm going to badly paraphrase Wong Kar Wai, but he was talking about Happy Together and the ending of that film. And he's, and someone said, what does Happy Together mean? A journalist was interviewing him. And he said, you know, it's sometimes your soul and your, your being in a way or, or your external and your internal are two separate things in terms of how outwardly you feel and how inwardly you may feel terrible. And the idea of, happy together is not necessarily that the couple are happy together, but that the person has found some way of moving forward with peace. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really badly paraphrasing that, but, but I think that also applies for, for Chunky Express is that no one's necessarily, you know, running off into sunset, although there's some ambiguity um, in, in the Fei Wong particular story, but it, everyone's definitely got a better sense of who they are, what makes them happy and what they're looking for. Um, by the end of this, the two segments than they did at the start. Yeah. And I also love that in a more conventional movie, I think there would have been either something more concrete happening between Tony Lung and Fei Wong at the end, um, or it would have shown them being really upset that nothing had happened <laughs> and yes, you know the yes. two of them coming back together at the end and it's just like oh hey how are you yeah i'm doing really well you're doing well really well and it's kind of like you off weirdly screen. got the same job as my ex yeah yeah that, yeah, yeah that, that yeah. is yeah. like uh yeah um, <laughs> but and then it's kind of left like who knows maybe they'll get together maybe they won't but they're both just kind of living their lives and everything's fine and nobody is resentful and nobody's upset and blah yeah yeah, and he's now got a fast food restaurant. What what what's not to love? Right um, by the end of it, um, and probably a very significant number of cuddly toys by the time she's <laughs> yes. come back. Yeah, like full body pillow size <laughs> cuddly toys. And those fish, there may be a lot more fish as well in the tank by the by yes. the time. Back. Yeah. Um, but that's 
But that's the magic of it. I mean, the, the other shot that I love so much of it, which sort of sums up the start and the end and the whole thing is when the depth of field shot, the two of them sort of talking to each other, but they're, they're not actually talking to each other. Their heads are, you know, at the other side of the, um, the countertop, but they're both having a conversation over the loud music. That, that is, is an incredibly well-composed uh, shot. And um, just to have that imagination between DOP and director to take all those chances on the way they were going to tell the story and, you know, build up to what is essentially a wish fulfillment ending where you still don't know which way it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, to take all those risks. It's a very old fashioned fifties story. You've even got a sort of Marilyn Monroe esque mm-hmm. uh, uh, sort of drag yeah. uh, in the first in the first story. All of that it's very it's it's very sort of old fashioned Hollywood in a way, but yet with this kinetic um spirit. Right. And that particular character like old-fashioned Hollywood, but kind of in Blade Runner. <laughs> yes, um, yes, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 certainly. Um, but I, I, I love that you're sort of totally... Um, we, I was having problems for, for whatever reason trying to get the subtitles up, and I sort of love how you can almost not have subtitles for that first section until mm-hmm. the group um, decide to double-cross her with the drugs. Um, it sort of plays out like a like an incredible comic book um story-wise she's she's an incredibly dynamic uh odd character that character Mm -hmm. yeah incredible and i also the all all of those moments where they're in the uh chip shop snack shop whatever they call it um and the music is too loud like in normally the convention in films is if there are people in a club or something and they can't hear each other it's like loud pumping techno music or you know really loud rock music and this is like california dreaming <laughs> like and i kept thinking like guys i, I can hear you, both of you so <laughs> you, you can hear each other it's fine um, yeah i love that moment though I, it's something very very sweet and you know this would be a moment where normally you cut for time or whatever it's it's sort of sad that these moments go but there's that kind of coordinated leaving where they all leave the two of them to sort of fall in love in a way and all of the cooks from from the behind the scenes sort of walk out and say they've got to go somewhere they've got to go somewhere and it and it feels like a sort of a a classic rom-com that all of the friends sort of walk out to let the two lovers work out whether they've got a future together it's just nice little touches through that 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 are really beautifully done right yeah (sighs) What a lovely film. Um, I feel extremely satisfied. Um, do you have any further comment? Do you, anything that you uh, feel like we haven't touched on? Uh, no, I think that was pretty comprehensive, I hope. Wonderful. Yes, I feel so too. Um, thank you so much for chatting to me. This was really fun. And... If people who are listening to this want to find out what you've got coming up, uh, is the Seesaw website the best place to do that? Uh, it is, but I think probably our uh, Twitter and Instagram is probably even more update, more up to date than that. So um, that's probably the most up to date news you can possibly find on us. 
It's like, uh, leave it to grandpa to suggest, like, looking at uh, somebody's website, like, do you have an email blast that people can register for? Um, uh, well, you know, uh, or, or contact me through my pager, whichever, yes. whichever way is quicker. Yes, right. <laughs> leave a note in a park. Pigeon. Someone Buy a pigeon. Yes. yes. Exactly. Yes. Um, great. Well, thank you so much. This is really fun. And that was great thank you ian watch all of his films and his tv shows they're all incredible that is not an exaggeration and his latest film the day shall come starring anna kendrick is out now in the uk so check it out okay Let's get some recommendations going. I mentioned Fleabag in the intro, and I saw a National Theatre Live screening of the stage show. If you're not familiar with NT Live, they film stage productions and show them in cinemas. It was so much fun. Phoebe Waller-Bridge's one-woman show has the same DNA as the TV show, but there's enough differences that it was really enjoyable. And in another reference to my rambling introduction, it was really interesting to see the differences between her stage performance and her screen performance. I would definitely recommend seeing the stage version if you are a fan of the TV show. And then I've got a little podcast recommendation for you. Ooh, helping the competition. Controversial. I really love the Adam Buxton podcast. He is an English comedian who UK folks might know from the Adam and Joe show. His podcast is really funny and sweet. He's got great guests. He's like Mark Maron if Mark Maron were English and a nice person. And this week, he's talking to Chris Morris, who directed The Day Shall Come, Ian's new movie. What a coincidence. Every podcaster who's anybody is talking to someone associated with that movie, right? Anyway, that's all I got. As always, please follow me on social media at Spark Parade. Rate and review the show in a glowing and five-star fashion wherever you download or stream the show. And that's all of your homework. Other than that, enjoy your week. Be good. Have fun. Until next time. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.